Father, you are good. That's a good description of you, good. In fact, you are the definition of good. So everything about you is described by your own character. Thank you for your goodness. Help us, Lord, when we don't sense or feel goodness from you. And yet, remind us of the truth that you cannot go against your character. It's flawless. And so we must turn to the word and remind ourselves of the kindness of our God, who is good to his children. Even in times of distress, you're good, Lord. Thank you for that reminder. Thank you for Hayward and worship team and sound team, Lord, that uh, help us and aid us in our worship, Lord. Bless them. Even those who can't be here tonight for one reason or another, Lord, cause them to return soon. In Jesus' name, amen. I made it through halfway through the chapter or so um, on Leviticus 19, but I want to jump right back into that. Uh, as we looked at chapter 19, we, we saw this national call for holiness by Israel's king, who is God, right? And we saw him spend time on holiness, speaking to Moses to remind the nation that he was holy. We reminded ourselves that holiness is this idea of being separate, separate from sin. And, and this means that God's different than man, right? He's extremely different. We just said he's good all the time. Right there, that teaches us that God is very different than man. But everything about him is holy. That means everything about him is absent of evil. He is perfect in all his ways. That's why we use the word divine when we speak of God. His divine holiness. It's a heavenly perfection of God. In the context, Israel was to be different. And that's why he's challenged them. You're my people. I'm holy. You belong to me. So you're to be separate from this world. That is the context. And so there's this call to holiness to be like God and to separate themselves unto God, particularly his truth compared to the humanistic truth of the day and those nations around them. And they were not to be like those the pagan nations. Now, God represented himself in his holiness and his glory. They could see that. His Shekinah glory was in awe. It was an unapproachable light. But all of his laws were holy. All of his actions were holy. Everything he did was just and good. Which sets him apart, right? In this pagan world that this nation was uh, roaming around in the wilderness, their religions had unholy laws. Godless pagan laws full of murder and terrible things. And so God did not want those shameful actions to be part of his holy people. So he says, be holy. And certainly we understand that God has in this new covenant and the new covenant, New Testament Christians, he's made us positionally holy through Jesus Christ. And there's this now a pursuit of practical holiness. Then we said that God gives laws that encourage the pursuit of practical holiness. And we saw in verses 3 through 5 that he began to lay down some of these very practical laws. And he's using, a lot of times he was using the the commandments. We saw in verse 3, he repeats the fifth commandment to children who were to honor their parents. That gave a window into the pagan world, what was happening in the pagan world as far as parenting and children. And, and he knew that this, was the, this established the building block of a good society. Children honoring their parents, parenting 
parenting well, parents parenting well. This was the building blocks of a stable and healthy society. Next, we saw at the end of verse 3 there that there was this command to keep the Sabbath. And the Sabbath was a day of rest. It was to be reminded that God had provided everything for them. And we reminded ourselves, Christians, we've entered into rest permanently. So every day is a Sabbath for believers, right? Though we gather quite frequently as a congregation, every day is a Sabbath because we rest in Jesus Christ. Verse 4, we saw the second command, uh, maybe the first and second. Not to have any other gods before me, don't make idols. Uh, He was showing them just out of the word idol, they're worthless, there's nothing. Do not bring this nothingness in front of me. Don't, Don't bring this into my relationship. He wanted Israel to see the worthlessness of the nations around them, the way they worshipped. It was worthless. And so he, he's encouraging them. Verses 5 through 8, we were reminded they were to bring peace offerings. This is a, their own free will offering. God did not want forced worship. He wanted fellowship with his, with his children, with the nation. He wanted them to desire fellowship. And he didn't want stale fellowship. I think that was the point that hit homes with us. Stale, well, it's Wednesday night. What are we doing Wednesday night? We go to church. You know, no, no. <laughs> we get to go to church. We get to sing. We get to gather. We get to hear from one another and care for one another. See, God desires uh, a, a very crisp fellowship with him. I think one of the most important things I studied out of that was God's um, repulsion of lazy worship. Lazy worship. And in fact, you see that in, in the verses there that it profanes him. That kind of worship profanes this holy God. And then we ventured into our third point. We made it about halfway through this point um, of a practice of holiness that affects a fallen society. In verses 19 through, excuse me, 9 through 10, we saw that they were to leave a portion of their field. They were to care for those less fortunate. Um, we talked about that there's probably about a 16th of their field they were to leave to the poor and these were this were a law to keep selfishness in check to keep greed in check uh, people are by nature greedy aren't we mm, you got mine <laughs> we just we, we want to hold on to things and god's teaching this nation you need to be generous like me god says i'm generous be generous like me so he's teaching a nation he's leading them towards him away from this covetousness of life of a a gripped by greed verses 11 through 13 he brings out the eighth commandment you should not steal this foundational for a society you have a society that just steals um you're not going to be a very good society and he's really establishing private property laws things that belong to him the authority of having in something and not taking something that god gifted somebody else in in, uh verse 12 uh Excuse me, verse 12, he brought out the third commandment, not to take his name in vain. This was the idea of, of swearing by an oath using God. We reminded ourselves, we're, we're to be holy. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Be men and women of the word. That's what God was after. Very different than the pagan world. Sounds should be very different than the pagan world today, right? Verses 13, he um, pushed the nation not to be robbers and those who steal see god was after a good economic life for the nation of israel a robust economic society that 
people were worthy of their wages, and those who owed the wages paid the wages, and it was a healthy society. Verse 14, he, he admonished them to be careful how they deal with people with disabilities. And how wicked was that to curse a deaf person or cause a blind person to trip? And, 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 he, and I think it's just a reminder how deadly the pagan world was to anybody with any infirmities. You probably would not get out of childhood if you were disabled, but that's not what God wanted. And we, and we, we ended this. We, we said that he did not want his nation to be cruel. Cruelty was not to be uh, an aspect of the nation. A holy God wants a nation not to be cruel. And as Christians, oh, brothers and sisters, we should not be cruel. Not cruel in our comments or the way we treat one another. Well, that, this is where we left off. And then we pick up in verses 15 and 16 on this practice of holiness that affects uh, fallen society. In verse 15 and 16, we start to get into some verses um, that remind us that God loves justice. Verse 15 and 16, you shall do, you should do not, uh, you shall not, excuse me, do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial and poor to the poor or defer to the great, but you, sh- you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You should not go about as a, oh, I'll get back to 16 and 17. Uh, yeah, let me do 16 as well because I want to tie this in. Um, as a slander among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord your God. And so here we begin to realize that God wants his nation to be known as a, God, as a nation that's just. And I, and I think this is probably particularly aimed at the leaders of the nation. They were to handle things God's way, correctly. In Exodus chapter 21 through 23, he really gives many of the principles of, of justice as the nation would start to create a legal system. And, and he's already given that. And so he's turning back to this and reminding of this, this pursuit of justice. Pursuit of justice. One of the things about critical race theory that is so damaging and so wrong is that it divides people into two different groups. There's the oppressor and the victim. It's so wrong. And it shoves people into one of those groups. And if, and if you, <laughs> by just your birth, you can find yourself not in one group and in the other. And you're labeled an oppressor. But that's not what God wanted at all. Israel was to have no part of that. Everything was to be done God's way, which is holy. You know, Jesus dealt with critical race theory in, in the book of John. John chapter 7, verse 24, he says this. Do not judge according to appearance. Why? Because that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were creating a system where if you wore the right things, ate the right things, did the right things, you were part of this group. If not, hmm, you're out. And so Jesus said, don't judge according to appearance. And he said this, but judge with righteous judgment. That's what our nation needs. Not some pagan, godless, critical race, social justice movement that, that aborts God's commands of how the nation should be run. It's terrible. And so God says, judge, judge by my righteousness. And yet our nation has thrown the Bible away. And so they are left to their own pagan thoughts on it. And that's why we vote and we work hard and we stand for truth, but we trust the Lord. And I think Jesus here in John 7 is just calling out these religious leaders. Verse 16 is 
on slandering. Slandering is um, a devastating thing. Breaks trust. And when you do this, you cause people uh, to hurt in ways that you probably don't understand. I think one of the ways that I've understood this is you often slander because you think you know something better than they or maybe even God. It should be nothing to do with our lives and should be repented of. It's, it's a rejection of God's holiness and righteousness. It saddens when we are involved in that. I've saddened myself at times. And, and we need to fight this because slander, slander destroys what God has meant to be a family, to meant to be a community. And here in the nation of Israel, he wanted this community of people to be able to trust one another. And slander was such a part of the pagan world. They, they destroy leaders as they climb the ladder of success. Later on when we study Israel, we realize that much of their collapse came through slander and scandalous things that they got involved with. I was just thinking today as I was reviewing this part of the notes that in 1 Kings 21, remember Jezebel slanders Naboth in order to get his vineyard. And he ends up getting him killed. This is just a part of the way pagans worked. And, and so God wanted no part of this. The, word for, the Hebrew word for slander is often translated in your Bible as tale bearers. Like telling tales, bearing tales. Uh, this person was one who traveled around and created scandalous situations by divulging evil and false reports and, and caused great injury. And God remembers this. When Jeremiah is speaking of the judgment of the nation, chapter 6, verse 28, early on in Jeremiah, he talks about their stubborn rebelliousness. And he says they go about as talebearers. This is not what God had for them. Paul was very concerned of the Corinthian church throughout the first letter. But even in his second letter, he's, in chapter 12, he talks about his concern that he may have to come back and, and, and that he would be he would be broken and he wished he wouldn't find them as angry people and disputers and slanders and gossips because he knew that would be destructive to the church in Corinth. And so what do you do about this when we gossip or slander? We've got to ask God to see, help you see the depth of your sin. We always don't see this. You have to ask him to help you with this. And once he exposes it, you've got to say, God, that's wrong. Forgive me and, and turn to that person and, and try to heal that relationship. Slander destroys the community that God designed. Notice in the end of verse 16 that God commands the nation to promote and protect the lives around them. I think this is a very important part of a healthy society. The Hebrew phrase is a difficult phrase, but it literally means to stand upon the blood of your neighbor. Here it's, it's difficult, and I read several people on this, and the idea was more that they were to stand up when they knew the truth about a case and not conceal it. We see too often today some young person or some older person is gunned down and their car is stolen or something happens, and everybody's there, but no one will talk about it. They're afraid they're going to get shot or something like that. But a nation that won't stand, will, that will not stand against injustice doesn't have a chance. 
So God knew this was such an important part of the nation. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of Israel, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, here you see this continual pursuit of holiness that he is leading the nation toward and that it's to be done daily. In fact, if you look at this verse, it's close to home. It's with your neighbor. See, God's law was at the heart of of what Israel was supposed to be. It was supposed to bring them back to following him. They were not supposed to be these hypocrites that would treat their neighbor one way, but in their heart hate them. He's warning against that in verse 17. God desires a heart change. He wants them to love the neighbor. The greatest command, Jesus repeats it. Of course, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, your strength. But the second is like it, to love your neighbors yourself. This was what made this nation unique and different from the other nations. They loved one another. They weren't trying to destroy one another as they worked themselves up the ladder. And listen, this is easier said than done with our own selfishness that's in our flesh, isn't it? We're always very protective of ourselves. We're protective of our children. We're very protective, and sometimes that'll cause us to act hypocritical because we're so protective of this person, we don't see what we're doing to the other person. It's damaging. And we have to learn from this. Notice in verse 18 that God reminds the nation that vengeance belongs to him. Sometimes you just got to leave room for God. You're not going to solve some of these things. And if they belong to the Lord, God's not going to let them get away with this. He's going to discipline the ones he loves. But then there's so many things that go on in our world today that you go, that's not right. <laughs> and I voted and I've done whatever I could, but there's just things you've got to say. Vengeance is yours, Lord. I'm going to trust you. And give room for God to work. See, to love our neighbors as ourselves is probably a little more difficult than we think. It's challenging, isn't it? If we maybe would sit down someday and just chart out our personal thoughts about ourself. <laughs> How many times did I think about myself today? It might be quite a list. You might be surprised how often you think about yourself and how lacking is this love for neighbors and church members and people close to us. See, God knew that a holy society, a society that was following God, these were core issues. Well, second in your notes there is a holy response to the contrast, um, a holy response to the constant uh, threat of pagan practice. A holy response to the constant threat of pagan practice. This is in section 19 through um, 31 here. And this section starts out with a strong command. You'll notice there in verse 19, you are to keep my statutes. I think one of the ways they kept the statutes of God was not mingling confusing things um and i i uh, some of the examples here are, are interesting and really are for the period but verse 19 says you're to keep my statues you're not to breed together two kinds of cattle you're not to sow your field with two kinds of seed or nor wear a garment upon you of two kinds of materials mixed together well one of the ways god was 
helping them keep their statutes is not mingling or confusing opposite things. Now, most of us probably have some color thread different here, so we, we want to be careful how we handle this. But I think what God's doing is he did not want his statutes and laws mingled with the pagan world's statutes and laws. You know what we call that today? Integrationism. Today, in the counseling world, there's this push to integrate worldly philosophies, worldly thinking, psychology with biblical stuff because the biblical stuff's just a little too hard. So we, we, you know, and they, and they didn't know the mind like we know it now. So there's constant pressure on pastors and the churches and counselors to integrate psychology in with the Bible. And I think this is what really God is after here, the danger of this. And, and I think what God does is he just takes everyday things that they see every day, and, and he's using that as an example here. And I think it's, it's a reminder. For instance, in the ancient, ancient world, they would take certain threads, particular colors that were unique to their gods, and they would weave those together, and these garments were thought that they could have magical uh, truth to them, and, and they would wear them in order to get messages from the spirit world, which is just demonic. And so God's, I think, just using things. I don't want you to be like them. I mean, i got to say something about this. It's crossbreeding the cattle. Um, I, cer certainly, he's using something they saw every day to help teach a biblical truth, but, but these things are not something we would worry about today. I think the application is important. We had great crossbred cattle. We had a part of our ranch uh, had partner that we did uh, purebred Angus bulls. We sold bulls, so it means we had lots of cows that bred, and that was a purebred. But then Gina and I had a commercial herd that was a mixed, and we, we bred them for, uh, for just they would sell really well at the market. Um, but that's, that, that, those, those were good things. And I think what he's after is, is somewhere, maybe a New Testament picture would be something like Corinth, who loved the knowledge of man and tried to somehow tie that into Paul's teaching and the gospel, and they just made a mess of things. God didn't want that. Maybe a parable, and I don't have time to get to this one, but a parable in, in Matthew chapter 13 where the sower, the farmer goes out and he sows a certain grain in. But when the grain comes up, it's full of tares. And, and the servant said, well, why, why did this happen? He said, the enemies came in and they sowed this seed in there. And now you have good seed, good wheat that's growing up. And in it, you have all these weeds. And so the servant said, well, should we go and pull the mountain? And the master says, no, no. If you try to uproot that, you'll take the good tares and then he says this, I'll sort them out. And the tares will burn someday. And, and so there's, there's this warning, and he was certainly talking about this humanistic traditions of the Pharisees, these traditions, they had one for every day of the week um, that had worked their way, and they tried to mingle that with the law of God and adding to what God said, and they just confused and made the field very unfruitful. Brothers and sisters, we have to watch for this. This is a danger to the church. Integration of worldly philosophy. Now, this is happening to so many churches. They, I don't know what, for what reason. It has to be that they just don't hold to the sufficient scriptures. But they allow things of the world to drift into their theology. 
And a lot of it starts with, I, doubtless, yeah, I, I'm just speaking honestly, maybe they really just have a deep love for people. But your love for God's word has to be greater. I have a, certainly have a deep love for people. But I'm not going to compromise on what God says in the family. I'm not going to compromise on, on psychology mixed with God's word. We're not going to compromise there. It does so much damage, and I think this is what the, the lesson here for us is. Look at verses 20 through 22. Now, if a man lies carnally with a woman who is a slave acquired for another man, but who has in no way been redeemed, nor given her freedom, there shall be a punishment. And they shall not, however, be put to death because she is not free. He shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord to the doorway of the tent of the meetings, a ram of a guilt offering. The priest shall also make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin, which he committed, and the sin which he has committed will be forgiven. This is a difficult verse. I want you to understand the context here is not adultery, it's fornication, just as that. Adultery at this time was deserving of death. It was death by stoning. The slaves in the pagan world were fiercely abused. God wanted no part of those who were servants to the nation to be treated anything like this. In fact, he wanted them treated with dignity. Dignity. There's a real key word in there. The word redeemed is a key word. It helps us understand that this woman was probably an indentured servant. It means she sold herself into slavery for one reason or another. Save her family, pay off debts, whatever it may be. And that was the main thing that happened with Israel. Much of the well, what a lot of people like to point fingers at the Bible, it was more indentured servants than just outright slavery. And they were to be released on the seventh year. Yet, in this, you see that God is, trying, is, is setting up a law to protect her from a master who could take advantage of his authority. And he's protecting her. She's in a, she's in a very um, vulnerable position, isn't she? Notice the little phrase, there shall be a punishment. It doesn't tell us. Well, it comes later in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 23 and following that the punishment is revealed that the violator was put to death. That's him. In fact, it goes on to teach that she's compensated for her loss because there's a good chance she won't be able to be marriable anymore. And so God deals with this. But I think the main point is, is the pagan world treated slaves like dogs. They didn't care if they lived or died. This was not what God wanted. He wanted all people within, within the walls of Israel, within the, the nation of Israel, to be treated with dignity. I think our lesson for us is, how do we treat people around us? You say, well, I don't have any slaves. Well, that's good. But you may have employees. Um, Certainly, we all go to dinner. We have waitresses and waiters. You have nurses that serve you and all kinds of things. uh, God wants us to treat people with dignity. We don't own them. And we should treat them with dignity. It's part of our gospel message. Verses 23 through 25. When you enter the land and plant all kinds of trees for food, then you shall count their fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you, and it shall not be eaten. But in the fourth year, all of its fruit shall be holy and an offering of praise to the Lord. In the fifth year, you are to eat its fruit that it yields 
may increase for you, for I am the Lord your God. Well, first of all, when they went into the land, there was already fruit growing, so God provided for them. Because some people read this and they go, well, are they going to be hungry? <laughs> I mean, no, no. Remember, he said, I'm, I'm going to give you houses you have not built and vineyards you have not planted. So he provided for them as they went into the land. But now as they plant their own stuff, he has a lesson for them. He wants them to be mindful of, of the ultimate goal of the promised land is to bring glory to God, be good stewards of it, and take the fruit that belongs to the Lord and give it to him. And God knew the harvesting process, that there was a period of time that was beneficial to the tree to get its root system down. I remember I planted a bunch of fruit trees one time, and my dad sent a guy over and trimmed his trees, and um, I knew enough Spanglish where we could kind of talk. And, um, but the next thing I know, he's just lopping off limbs, pulling fruit, and throwing it down. And I thought, oh man, there's all my nice little trees. And, and uh, he pruned them back so well and did such a great job. In the coming years, I had peaches the size of softballs. I mean... What, what a beautiful thing that he knew how to handle those trees right. And then it says the fourth year belongs to the Lord. And I, I think what he's just teaching them is a holy God is worthy of our first fruit. I mean, you can, there's a lot of application here, right? Our own funds that God gives us. You should give first to the Lord. That's just a good way of being a good steward as you do your bills. Give to the Lord, right? Right off the bat, give that to the Lord. Because, you know, you might not have a lot at the bottom. <laughs> give it to the Lord first. I think there's a good application there. But our children, our marriages, our homes, there's all kinds of ways that we can be good stewards of the things God gives us. Well, notice verses 26 through 31. Here he gets into several things here. And first he starts in verse 26, that life is in the blood. And we saw this in Leviticus 17. But again here, God reminds Israel the pagan practices around them. It was pagan. Look at verse 26 with me. You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor practice divination or soothsaying. Now, any of this stuff was around demonic activity. That's, that's what this all was about. And it was just prevalent with the worship of idols in the pagan nations. And this whole industry of divination and soothsaying... Um, it was, it was used by mediums to connect with the spirit world. Um, that was just commonplace with the neighbors that were around them, the other nations. And, and in raw reality, you think about this for a, a, a nation under God, which Israel would have been, or a Christian, it really rejects to go to a fortune teller or to What's it called when you're born in a certain month? I don't even know what mine is, but what is it called? Horoscopes. Yeah, horoscopes, all that. It's just a rejection of the sovereignty of God. I don't even read fortune cookies. I throw them across the table to Gina. I don't want this. This is me. It's silly. It's just me. It's a rejection of the sovereignty of God. Don't mess around with that stuff. And he, he, look, at a godly nation, a nation that's to behave like their king would have nothing to do with this. And these worshipers of these pagan dead gods would go even further. You notice in verse 27, they would shave their heads and their beards or their hair. In fact, they were known just to shave everything but leave this little tuft of hair on the top. And so what God instructs in verse 27, the nation to do is actually be normal. Grow your hair out, you know, have sideburns and a beard, you know, for men. It was normal. They've kind of ruined that, haven't they? They didn't done that today. Now everything's about, you know, when 
in the Orthodox about their beards and their hair and their hats and all that stuff, right? God was teaching them to be normal. Don't walk around with a shaved head, a little tough on that. That was, that was pagan worship. He's teaching them to be godly, normal people. Verse 28 is always a fun one. I think I've been asked this verse many times by mostly youth. You shall not make any cuts in your body for the dead, nor make any tattoo marks on yourself. I am the Lord. Well, again, we come to a very common practice of the pagans, um, and God wanted his nation to be separate from them. The trimming of the hair and beards and cutting and tattoos, these were just mourning rituals. They mourned. When they mourned over the death of someone, they often did these rituals. In fact, I read in one account that nations around them would put deep gashes into their skin as they mourned and dripped blood for their dead relative. In fact, it got worse than that. They believed that they were providing blood for the spirit of a dead person, and they would do it in the name of their favorite God. They would dig a hole, cut themselves, bleed into a hole for that dead soul. Absolutely godless. And God wanted them to have no part of this. Furthermore, they would tattoo themselves. Tattooing was always around a symbol of their gods. So whatever god they loved, if they were Philistines and loved Dagon, they would, they would tattoo an image of, of Dagon on them. Many commentaries uh, were just full of illustrations of tattoos on the faces, on their arms, across their bodies, all different forms and pictures of their idols were on them. Now what do we do about that in the New Covenant? <laughs> well, certainly this is given to Israel. It's given in this time here. And, and I don't think we can establish anything in the New Testament that would deny a Christian to put a tattoo on them. I, I would, I, and I've cautioned people on this, I would be careful to make sure that what you're marking yourself with is not some kind of idol. To make sure that's just not something. And, and look, I know there's maybe a generation of people, I'm not looking at anybody, um, where tattoos are a little more difficult. But those same people will wear a head-to-toe with their favorite team, you know, hats, garments, everything. I'm not looking at anybody, Tom. Um, and <laughs> Sorry, did I, did I say that? <laughs> you know, I love you. <laughs> so, so I think we have to be careful there a little bit, okay? I'm just saying be careful uh, on some of this. Uh, because sometimes we get a little excited. And though, though maybe we or you or me may not, that's not be a way that we would express ourselves in that way. Um, be careful. We probably express our way and show some of the idols of our heart in different ways. Does that make sense? This is how I usually handle this. It, I think 1 Corinthians 11, as I look forward a little bit, 1 Corinthians 11 is going to deal with us a little bit. Of how we identify our, in ourselves the way we're marked or dressed or something like that. So we'll get into that a little more. Verse 29 is really around sex trafficking. Verse 29, do not profane your daughters by making her a harlot so that the land will not uh, fall into harlotry and the land will become full of lewdness. Um, sex trafficking has always been around, hasn't it? It's appalling. We hate these things, but it was a common practice in the nation. He's bringing this up because this is what's done around the world. And the nation of Israel was going on. It's still being done around the world. And listen, children are a gift from God. Psalm 127, we know that, right? Children are a gift from God. Blessed is the man who has children. Biologically adopted. Blessed is that person. 
So uh, the application is Christians should do everything we can to provide a safe environment in our homes, our churches, our schools, our ministries. Children need to be protected from predators. And God's serious about this. He says, I am your Lord, right? I mean, this is, this is full of lewdness. This is harlotry. This is, this is terrible stuff. And so we should support every law that teaches this. And we should help do everything we can to prosecute this. Look, this is just nothing but satanic. The satanic influence of the pagan nations, listen, that would lead a father to give his daughter into prostitution? See, some people think, that, and I think some of us get a little older, we look, man, God, Scott, it's bad. Times are really bad. Jesus is coming any moment. I hope he does. But when you study this, you begin to say, oh, my goodness. This is in the first time. Remember, man reaches full depravity in the garden. He's not getting more deprived. He reached full depravity in the garden. He's just more creative today. Right? We have to understand those things. Look at verse 30. Man, i got to get going. You shall uh, keep my Sabbath and reveal my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Well, here there's a connection between the Sabbath and the tabernacle. I think this is really special. Uh, on the Sabbath, listen, God did not want the streets full of business. He wanted the streets full of worshipers. He, he did not want them to be like the rest of the world. It was another day to make money. He wanted his nation to, to revere worship. He wanted them to have a desire for worship. Uh, business and finances can completely dominate our lives if we're not careful. And then we squeeze in a couple of hours out of 167 to go do corporate worship. See, God doesn't want that. See, every day is a Sabbath for a Christian of the new covenant. We rest in Christ, and it, that should be seen in all that we do. Verse 31, do not turn to mediums or spiritists. Do not seek them out to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Pagan nation sought to be connected with the dead. They still do. I'd love to take you to places where I've been around the world and where you see this absolute pagan worship of the dead. It is nothing but demonic. They're not talking to the dead. Your dead grandmother never came up and talked to you. That's demonic. God when someone dies, they're under judgment. That's all demonic. And so you can see the warning here coming by the holy God to his nation that he set apart. Do not be influenced by this. I don't want this occultic behavior near my people. He uses the word defile here. Um, the word means to make dirty. I think it's just another term for unclean. You're not fit to be in the presence. And so fortune telling today is just evil, and Christians should avoid it at all costs. Third, and I, this is just a wrap-up point for the end of 19, further laws of kindness and justice that display the nature of a holy God and his people. And then these are very descriptive here and worth looking at real quickly here. He says, you shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, you shall revere your God, I am the Lord. 
when a stranger resides with you in your land, you, sh you, shall do not, um, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I think this is very descriptive of God's principle. Love your neighbor. See, the principle doesn't say who that neighbor is. Same skin color, same religion, same whatever. God teaches us to love our neighbors, show kindness to them. And, and, and I love, don't you, some of us, maybe hear more. I mean, isn't that cute how he does the elderly there, the aged? And just little things. Um, parents, we encourage you not to have your children run in the church, not because we worship this building. We're actually afraid you're going to break somebody's hip. <laughs> right? Be careful. There's elderly, there's some disabled here. Parents, teach your children not to run. Honor the aged. There's just little things that we can do that honor that. God has given us a great, healthy, senior, persevering saints in this church. What a joy to have a church that has godly people, godly aged people who, who are not just aged in in numbers and in, in, in years, but aged in the scriptures. The church is blessed to have this. And God knew that you treat the elderly poor, the nation's going down. And that's what our nation's doing, and, and we, need to, we need to be very careful of that. Strangers, um, look at that. Make strangers like one of you. I love when strangers, people who are new to our church, come they're very much loved them. And we've had some people, quite a few in the last couple of years, that don't agree with us at all theologically. But they'll say, that church is really kind to us when we were there. And, and I, I, our elders hear that. We're, we're to treat people justly and kindly. Verses 35 and 36. You should do no wrong in judgment and measures of weight or capacities. You should have just balances, just weights, just ephat, just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Well, one of the things that makes a nation resemble its king is the way you do business. How do you do business? See, God cares how we do business. Do we do it honestly? Or we like the surrounding cultures of the nation of Israel or even the cultures today that there is this love of wealth, love of money, which is the root of all kinds of evil, right? The Bible tells us. This is the way they were, they were surrounded by this gross enslavement to, to, to wealth. God says, don't let my people be enslaved to wealth. He wants honest measures. Honor him and the way you deal with business this is what he's after. Finally, to close out this passage, it is, it's got to be noted, and I, I said I would note this last week. It says, I am the Lord 15 times in this passage. And I think it's God's way of declaring that he's Yahweh, Lord of everything. Employees, your money, your neighbor, all of these things he's dealt with here, he is to be Lord. And thus, he has the right to tell his nation of Israel or the body of Christ what to do and how to do it. I think that's what's so appalling of the integration movement and the, the churches that are slipping away quickly is God says something so clear. And yet, well, we're not going to do that. 
we're going to do this instead. It's a rejection of an almighty God and his word. Because they think culture has changed. <laughs> oh, man hasn't changed. He's just as deprived as he used to be. And so we're reminded here that we're his subjects. I think this is what he was doing. And we do things the way he commands us to do. We, we love him, and so because we love him, we obey him. And we love to follow the king of kings. But those who are redeemed are always going to have a problem with all of this stuff. All with the Bible. When they're not redeemed, they think on their own. There's no spirit of God. There's no conviction over those things. Yes, there's a moral law of God written on their heart, but they can squelch that after time, and they can be hardened and callous and given over to these things. But not the Christian. Not the Christian. We're redeemed. And so the gospel challenges us. I want to briefly take a look at chapter 20, because I think I can sum this up. Um, because in chapter 20, um, we have... Uh, the penalties for breaking the laws of idolatry, immorality, and occultic behavior. Um, in Leviticus 18 and some in 19 here, there's this list of these grave sinful offenses against God from idolatry to immorality and occultic behavior that we see in here. In chapter 20, we see God start to list these things and the punishment that goes with them. And so he's addressing this Israelite community and their responsibility to make sure that these sins are not in their community and when they show up, they're to be dealt with in a way. And so this is where he dolls out how these should be handled. Now again, we are not Israel. Let's make that clear. We don't as a church believe that we're the new Israel. We do believe that God has a plan for Israel and will redeem a remnant from them. And uh, that's going to take place in time. Um, but it's not hard to see the consequences of our own nation failing to do things God's way and what we're dealing with from abortion to immorality to social justice and so forth. But that doesn't excuse the church. The church is to handle things God's way. We're his bride, we obey him, and we do this because we love him. Let's go through this quickly, verses 1 through 5, and I, I won't be able to read all of this, but I just want to point to it, we, we find a penalty of idolatry here. Um, chapter 18, verse 21, now he begins to point to Moloch here. The worship of Moloch was described in chapter 18, verse 21, and God calls that worship a profanity to his name. That's how he looks at this in the first five verses of chapter 20. And to those caught in the sin, the instruction is punishment, it's death by stoning. This was, we talked about Moloch and They'd heat it up and burn babies into it and all kinds of godless things with Moloch. Now, it was to be done by the nation to ensure that they would understand how great of offense this was to God. So if somebody was caught worshiping Moloch, they were to be stoned. The community was to stone them in front of everybody so that they would know that this was a sin against God. That was offensive to him. It broke the first commands. Verses 4 and 5, you can see that God clarifies to the nation so that they don't engage in these evil sins. And, and God also wanted that there, that there would be a family responsibility to deal with this. Notice the family is involved in this. That, that family would recognize as idolatry in their family. And if the offender is not dealt with according to the law, then he and his family were cut off. Meaning they don't have a way back to the tabernacle. Thus, they don't have a way back to reconciliation with God. 
And notice they were to be considered as adulterous, harlot. This is how serious God deals with idolatry. And I think it gets, sometimes we can get, um, maybe when we talk about idols of the heart, it can be a little bit of white noise to the Christian because we speak about it a lot more than we used to. But you have to look at this, how God looks at idolatry. He has not changed. He is the same God. So we must look at that and say, oh God, this is offensive to you when I have idolatry in my heart towards something. Second, there's a penalty for involvement with occultic behavior. Um, We've talked about this a little bit already, but look in verses 6 through 9. Here you see that God tells the nation to have nothing to do with a person caught in a sin. Again, he uses the word cut off. That's a penalty. And like I said a little bit earlier, God knew the dangers of demonic practices. They are not dealing with dead people. They're dealing with demons. And he knew that this involvement with was such a gross sin would, would cause him to separate from his children. And that's exactly what happened as Israel goes on. And so he, he wants this dealt with. Don't deal with this stuff. It was never to be part of God's people. And they were to practice walking with God, being set apart. I, I was thinking about this today, and I, I thought of Acts chapter 19. Um, it's an interesting passage. It's, it's a challenging passage to teach through. But there comes the sons of Seneca, I think, or something. I can't remember his name. Sikba. And these are sons of a high priest or a priest. And, and they're watching the apostles pass, you know, uh, cast out demons and so forth. And so they start to get engaged with us. And you remember what happens. The demon comes up and goes, yeah, we know Jesus and we know Paul. Who do you think you are? And they just pounce on them and beat them all up and all kinds of things happen. And, and then the church reacts to this and a lot of other people probably. Acts chapter 19, and many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and they began to burn them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, I don't know if you were raised in the 70s in Christianity. There was always a church that was burning records somewhere. You remember this. They would have a book, the book burnings, the record burnings, and all that. You know, they would hold up this. And, you know, I remember going to one, and some guy was holding up a Playboy or something. Of course, all the boys are trying, trying to look at it. And then he'd throw it in the fire, and everybody would cheer. You know, and that's not what God's talking about here. But he is serious about things that belong outside of his people that they need to be gotten rid of. And And in that account in 19, they see that God was serious about those who held to the name of Jesus Christ. That he alone was the ruler of all things. And demons were to submit to him, not to some guys who all of a sudden want to cast out demons. And they begin to recognize this. And so they want to get rid of things out of their life. I think that's the the, the, um, point here. It's time to go clean out um, the house and sweep it out by the grace of God. Notice in verse 27, describes the punishment of those who were the practitioners of it. Drops all the way down to the end of the passage in chapter 20. And you see that the practitioners of this, a man or a woman who is a medium or spirit, shall surely be put to death. They shall stone him with stone. Uh, They should be stoned with stones. And then it says their blood guiltness is upon them. It's their fault. So, Bible warns us. 1 John 4, test the spirits. Right? 
And the way you test them is, is the Spirit of God always points, spotlights Jesus Christ and his sufficiency in everything in our life from salvation to godliness. That always is where the Spirit of God points. Anything else that points to your flesh and your goodness and any of that is demonic. And that's why Paul talks about the doctrines of demons in 1 Timothy 4, about don't eat this and don't touch that, and all those things that seem really good and really spiritual, and they have a big pointy thing on top of their church. But God says, all of that works-based salvation is doctrines of demons. It's not of God. Test the Spirit. Test the Spirit. Is your salvation by Jesus Christ alone, or are you still trying to bring some offering that's not of God? And that's the point of that as we think about this from a New Testament point of view. Verse 8, there's two important aspects here of Israel's walk, is that they were to practice God's law, and they were to be separate. But then notice this verse 9 comes in, a cursing of parents. And you go, why is it right here in the middle of this demonic, spiritist-type thing? Um, well, I don't think this is an outburst of a children, right? Otherwise, all of our children are dead. <laughs> I, I don't think this is an outburst of a small children. That, you know, he yelled at me, we stoned him, you know. I think Israel would be a nation. I think it's most likely older children and possibly even adult children. And I want you to think about the context that it's in here. I think this is to expose this wicked heart hatred towards parents. And it's the integration or the uh, intergenerational integration of, of, of wickedness that would make its way into Israel. Remember when we see uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam and their problems they have... They, they went after, Jeroboam particularly, went after young men and got their counsel instead of the aged. And so here we find this demonic type of thinking. I think this is where this is going because it's in this context that the nation wasn't to tolerate this intergenerational hatred. Um, and I, I think it's more than a child using a four-letter word towards his parents. I, I I think, and this is my thoughts here, I think it's pointing more to the effectual calling down of demonic curses against their parents. Lying in the context that it's in here. Of these mediums and spirits and all of this stuff. And that would be very true. The nations around them, they wouldn't like their parents. So I'm going to call down on these spirits that I've cut myself and gave them my blood. That they're going to curse you, mom and dad. And so I think this is where God is after here. And this would be in line with the cultic behavior of these preceding verses. A sinning child, probably older, would call down this demonic world to cast spells in their family. Deuteronomy chapter 21 deals with this. Um, here it says there's a death penalty. Deuteronomy 21 adds to this and says they are to be brought before the elders and leaders of Israel. It's almost a trial type thing before they're put to death. So, so that a parent couldn't say, well, he called the count a curse on me because we wanted to get rid of one. That couldn't be done. But notice again it said his blood guiltness is upon him. Simply that means the person who committed this sinful act is alone responsible for his own death. I've got to hurry. Penalties for sexual immorality. This is 10 through 21. We won't read any of these, but just look at this quickly as we go down through here. Again, I think it's important to understand these are penalties referring to Leviticus 18. Uh, chapter 10, I mean, verse 10, adultery was a great social uh, consequence. I mean, it just caused so much problem. Adultery really murders marriage. 
That's a strong statement, but I think that's what it does. In, in God's warning event, the penalty, um, God's commanded the penalty here, and it's, it's to be discouraged. This, this, is, this destroys the holy community of God's people. 11 and 12, this was the penalty for the sin of incest. This is coming out of uh, Leviticus 18, 6 through 18. And completely out of the order of God's divine creation. And incest is really a murder against family. Death is the punishment. Chapter, uh, verse 13, the penalty of sin of homosexuality, Leviticus 18, 22. This is also another family killing sin. There's just no way around this. And the death is the penalty. Verse 14, the penalty of marrying a, a woman and her mother, Leviticus 18, 17. It's referring back to. Um, there are some debates on the commentaries and theologians on this, whether they are to be burned to death or it was a branding to mark them in their immorality as a lesson to the nation. I haven't really settled on this. I know this verse has been abused and used for burning of people um, in some of the primitive days, but um, the wording is tricky there. Um, but, the, but the punishment is bad. Uh, you would not want either one of those. Um, but it's sin against God's creative order for the family. It's not what God's design is. And it goes right back to the garden. This is what I've said for a man and a woman. A husband and a wife and nothing else should enter into that. Verses 15 and 16, there's a penalty for the sin of bestiality. It comes from Leviticus 18.23. Um, all involved are to be put to death. And they are to be responsible for their own death. That's what the Bible says here. Because they're sin against God. Uh, it's a grave sin against the design of the family. And just like homosexuality, it robs, it robs the marriage of the intimacy reserved for a husband and wife. And so it's disgusting, but it just goes against contrary to what God has set for a husband and wife. 17 through 21, there's penalties for other sexual sins listed in Leviticus 18. I think this is part of this ancient form of pornography uh, that we talked about when we were going through that text. But it's a clear attack, again, on, the, on God's order for the family. Cut off means there's no death penalty, but they're to be removed from the ability to get to the tabernacle where reconciliation could be made. And then it says this, they will die childless. Uh, unfortunately, um, when we found barren women in the Bible, they often thought they did maybe this or they did something that God was judging them. But here God says they will be childless. So that tells us he has the control over who has children and who doesn't. I mean, this is just one simple verse in a very difficult passage that God can tells us right now that he gives the, the gift of child, a child. So not only will they be cut off in this grave sin to be barren, but possibly the children they do have will be taken from them. That, that might be what's going on. And this is what happens when you find some people who hurt children and, and people go in and take their children out of their home, rightly so. And when we fail to do that, we put children in very difficult spots. And so God's seeking to put an end to this corruption in the nation before it ever started, right? Last thought real quickly, a nation called to obedience and separation, verses 22 through 26. This is a very important verses that help us defend, um, in a way, rightly defend um, God from some of the attacks that he has attacked on how he handles people in the Old Testament. Verse 22, you therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances to do them so that the land to which I am bringing you out 
to live will not spill you out. Now, the nation who, when you think what he's trying to say is the nations who are living in the promised land that you're going to, they, they were deeply involved in these sins. And these two verses are very key to help us understand. They're, they're grossly involved in all the sins that we've been listing from 18, 19, and into the judgment in verse 20. And because of that, God's going to use the nation of Israel to bring judgment down upon them and either wipe them out or drive them out. And he's now, so he's saying, look, I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring this judgment on these nations, but you're not to fall into these same sins. Or I'm going to use your enemies to do this. And the land, notice he uses the word spew. Some of your commentaries may, I mean, your Bibles may say vomit. Projectile you out of the land. And that's exactly what God did. When they chose to, to adulterate themselves against God. So Israel, this chosen nation, God's chosen nation, chosen people, they're to separate themselves. But look at verse 23. This is well marked in my Bible because many times I've brought young people here or people who like to tack the Bible that God kills people. It says, moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nations, of the nation which I will drive out before you. For Listen to this. For they did all these things, therefore I abhor them. I don't quite think you can get our mind around. When you look at 18, if you said, I had to put a lot of time on this, study 18, 19, and 20, and you go, that was the way they thought. All of that gross stuff we've been working our way through, that was their lives. That's how they raised their children. That was, they were entrenched in that pagan, godless society. It helps you understand why God brought the wages of sin upon those nations. Just like in the day where people who have not repented of their sin, he will bring wages on them in the end. And he'll open the books and all the deeds recorded of them, he will judge them by those books. And that's what he did here. Our God is holy. He judges sin. There's no other way around it. And we have to help people realize God is holy. He judges sin, but he's made a way for you to be forgiven of your sins. He's made a way that judgment will be put on his son versus you. you gotta help. That's the gospel. That's how we help them. But instead, they want to fight you, don't they? But we keep preaching the gospel because we're part of God's holy people, right? So, verse 24 and 25, Israel belongs to God. They're to be distinguished among the pagan world in a way that they live differently. They worshiped differently, clean and unclean. They saw the differences in those things. Verse 26, God wants his people to love him and not be in some robotic worship. He, he wants their loyalty. You can see that in there. He, he wants them to believe that they're not, he's not only their king, he's their savior. Because all through Leviticus and all through the Pentateuch, he keeps reminding them, I brought you out of slavery. I rescued you. I saved you. And that's the difference between somebody who just wants a king and somebody who wants a savior. That's why they killed Jesus. They want a savior. They want a king. Someone to feed us. Do all these things for us. Well, finally, let me just close with this passage. Wow, I'm way over. First Peter. Got to look at this because I want to put this into. Um, I want to put this into a New Testament sense. First Peter chapter two. You know these verses. Verse nine. That's Second Peter. We're not Israel, but God hasn't changed. 
We're still his called people. The word kaleo is used all through the New Testament. He calls us to salvation. He calls us to be his people. And so he says, but you, Christian, under the new covenant, you're a chosen race, a holy holy priesthood, right to walk into his presence because you've now come through Jesus Christ and come into the Holy of Holies, a holy ethnos of people, a new race, a holy race of people, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's what he wanted Israel to do, and they didn't do it. They got caught up in the world. They integrated the world's worships and pagan philosophies in with theirs, and they fell. We don't do that. We're to proclaim his excellencies. Verse 10, for you once were not a people, but now you are a people of God. I mean, that's right in line with Ephesians 2. You once were dead in your sins. You you were children of wrath, not children of God. But now you're a child of God. You didn't have mercy, and now you do. (laughs) Imagine all of our dear unsaved friends do not have the mercy of God right now. They have a a common grace of God that he gives to all of his creation, but they don't have his saving mercy. Beg God to give your loved ones mercy. His saving mercy. And notice this, what look what happened. So Peter says, beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, you're different. You're a different race of people. To abstain from fleshly lusts which war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so in the things in which they slander you as evildoers that they may, because of your good deeds... As they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Walk, strive by the Spirit, humbly, leaning upon Him, we should walk daily so that our testimonies of our love for our King and for our Savior cause people, by His grace, to want to know why we're different. That's the idea there. I'm sorry, I went late. Father, thank you for the chance to get into this text. So much truth here, Lord, and um, here way back in the Old Testament, you just, you haven't changed, God, you're the same God, because you don't need to change, because you're perfect, and so we are able to apply these things to our life here in the 21st century, Lord, so help us be good stewards of your love, may we live your love out daily, thank you for the reminder of this, in Jesus' name, amen.